SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. One soul is not equal to another. Aha! So we've established my proposal is sound in principle, now we're just haggling over price. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley-Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Oh, are you off the Burnham Miles, sir? And this time around, we are looking at the second of uh, the five uh, Pirates of the Caribbean films. Um, nope, it's not the one that's the porno. That's called something else. Uh, this one is Dead Man's <laughs> Chest. Came out in 2006. Uh, directed again by Gore Verbinski. Produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. And um, starring the usual gang of idiots from the first one. But some new members to the cast are Stellan Skarsgård, Bill Nye. And um, that's pretty much it for the main cast members. Uh, music by Hans Zimmer. Cinematography Darius Wolski. And uh, according to Box Office Mojo... Off a budget of $225 million, this made $1.06 billion. So this movie, um, I mean, the first movie did well, but this one was a lot more successful, and the budget was about um, $100 million, almost $100 million higher. Now, you mentioned the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, porno parody. Uh, is that canon? Are we going to review that as part of this series? I wouldn't be opposed to do it at a later time, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there are porn sequels. I've never thought about that, but that's a good point. But there's that whole uh, genre, right, of the movie, unlicensed movie porn parodies. Like Avatar had one. Um, yeah, and not not to have too much of a tangent, but that is something that disappoints me about the, the current generation of porn. No one bothers to come up with a porn title anymore. They just put, this ain't official title, or official title, the porn parody. It's, that's, that's strictly for legal reasons. Oh, I know, but there's no fun in that. Well, like, But like, how can it be more legal to actually put the name Batman on your porno? Is, I, I guess that's fair yeah. use if you just use the part of the original title. The thing that, about fair use, and um, we'll get back to talking about Pirates 2 in a second, dear listeners, is uh, people don't understand it. Fair use, they, they think like, oh, I can play 30 seconds from a song and I won't get sued, but that's not really how it works. Like, it has to be determined on a case-by-case basis. Well, that's the thing. Is fa- fair use is not is not enshrined within the law. It is simply a concept that can be used to construct a legal defense. Yeah, it's like it's it's like a best uh, practices sort of thing. I mean, the, I am not a lawyer or anything, and neither are you, Thrasher. But as a quick example, if <laughs> I was, um, I, I I don't know, like if I was NPR and I was doing a review of uh, the um, some unreleased Michael Jackson CD, and I played like five seconds of a Michael Jackson song, and it's in the context of a review, that would probably be. Okay, 
what you could not do is like play uh, a whole track from the album and have with um, no discussion of it whatsoever and not uh, retaining the uh, broadcast rights. Yeah, and and interestingly enough, like that that's why that's why like movies and albums and studios and producers and whatnot send out uh, press kits. You know, they they send out stuff that's already earmarked with you can use this image in your review, no problem. You can use this clip in your review, no problem. That's why, like, if you ever watch like an Entertainment Tonight style show, like if you ever watch if some new movie's coming out, you'll notice that like the same five clips are in any story covering that movie because that's what's in the press kit that everybody got yeah it's called an epk electronic press kit but that's all fine and dandy well, let's actually <laughs> talk about pirates uh two dead man's chest uh, i did not see this in the theater but for some reason this is a movie that i have seen the most in the series when i was re-watching it for the show it, it, it struck me Oh wow! I've seen this movie like six times, and I think it's just happened to be one that was on TV a lot. I think because I didn't own it on video um, or anything for a long time. Yeah, I feel like during the holidays, this is always running on three different cable channels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so I saw this opening weekend when it came out. I had just moved back. Uh, I had just moved back to Virginia at the time, and my friends and I were looking for something to do. This is the first and last Pirates of the Caribbean film that I've ever seen in the theaters, and this is also where I checked out of the series. <laughs> wow! Yeah, so these uh, you're going to be a uh, a virgin for these other films in the series, huh? Yeah, I've ne- I have never seen any of the other ones. Okay, cool. Um... Yeah, you know, I, just some kind of initial impressions I remember uh, after seeing this in the theater. I, I think uh, overall this movie is a bit too serious and it's very bloated. Um, it well, kind of they... reminds me of what Peter Jackson did, like stretching the Hobbit book into three movies or something. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know the the Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films were ridiculously ridiculously successful and showed that. There was some sense to, if you know you're going to be making more movies, to just film them back to back. Just do one big production and get your get your multiple movies out of that. Yep. And it was, of course, done again with the two Matrix sequels. Um, and this movie has, I think, some of the same problems as the uh, as the Matrix sequels. This really is b- big as this is, and as much stuff happens in this film. It's really not a full movie. It doesn't end in a satisfying way. It go it goes on for too long, and then it doesn't end. It's like the Empire it, Strikes Back in the series. <laughs> well, well, no, no, because the Empire Strikes Back has a definite ending. It has sure. a climax, even though it sets things in motion for the next film. This movie doesn't have that. This movie kind of gets halfway there and then stops. And I think that's part of why I checked out. I was I was very frustrated at the way this movie ended after all the stuff that had happened. Yeah, and uh, so I mean, the runtime of this is uh, 150 minutes, and uh, but the runtime of the first one is 143 minutes. I mean, so they're roughly uh, the same length, two and a half <laughs> hours, give or take. And but, but yeah, with the first one, 
the first one I was not aware of how long it was. Mm. The first one was very was very good at that, and this one. Um, I was aware of how long this movie was about a half hour before it actually ended. And that's a very, that's very frustrating to be to have 30 minutes where I'm wondering when this thing is going to end. Yeah. And, uh, when you and I were in college, Thrasher, I believe we both took some writing classes and they talk about plot structure where it's t typically three acts, you know, act one, you introduce everyone act two, the, the heroes are in trouble and act three, you wrap things up And this one like ends in the middle of act two. So it's not, uh, narratively satisfying and it's also not um gee it you know like it it makes me think of austin powers you have the michael york character basil exposition oh yeah this feels like basil exposition the movie because like it's all set up and like you said not much of a payoff oh yeah and also the i guess the other the other flaw in this movie the first movie had the exact right amount of jack sparrow this is the but as jack sparrow was the standout character of the first movie well this is just his movie mm -hmm. there's way too much of him and his shtick and it is not properly counterbalanced with the other protagonists yeah it reminds me a bit of a you know a classic example of this is um Eddie Murphy did those Lenny Professor movies, and in the first oh, one, yeah. there's that scene with, with the clumps, right, where he plays uh, nearly all the family members, and it's a dinner scene. And yeah. at, at the uh, the second one is called The Clumps, and it's too much. It's like too much of a good thing. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the first film had the exact right amount of The Clumps. The second one... Uh, way oh too much of the clubs, <laughs> and yet the we we okay. I think we're gonna have to just resolve to cover those movies and the Jerry Lewis original because yeah. I can talk quite a bit about Nutty Professor Two, the clumps. No, that that's absolutely fair enough. Um, but uh, what's not the clumps is Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> Dead Man's Chest. Um, gee, this is such a wheezy large plot here. Well, yeah, they, I, there is so because like the, the first one you know pretty straightforward uh pirates steal aztec gold get cursed try to return the gold to break the curse all while having to deal with their former captain trying to get revenge uh and that that's pretty good there's yeah. a lot going on in this movie right and I, I would like to stress i don't think complicated plots are a bad thing i like movies like the godfather and um oh gee nothing else comes to mind at the moment <laughs> but, uh, you know what I'm trying to say, and but the problem is here, it just it, it just feels complicated for complicated sake. It's like oh, the Matrix did it. Let's, let's do that. And in a similar note, I mean, you mentioned the Matrix earlier, and that's a very good comparison because the original Matrix film has a relatively straightforward, simple plot, and the sequel, as we talked about on a show years ago, um, it just mucks it up. Well, I think the other thing is in the in the first film. Uh, there's only one supernatural element, the cursed Aztec gold, and everything kind of flows out of that. And as we talked about in our mm. previous episode, which was one of my, which amazingly enough, I think was my favorite to record in uh, 2018. That was a great way to end the year for me. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, no, Eric was great. But in this, but in this film, there's just too many supernatural elements going on. You've got a giant sea monster. You also have Davy Jones. You also have a magic compass. Uh, you also have an undead monkey. You also have a uh, voodoo magic. Uh, you there's 
there's there's too much supernatural stuff and it does not seem to follow any consistent rules. Yeah. And and also when you have that much supernatural stuff, it doesn't make it seem special like the the uh the the skeleton crew in the original seemed um you know creepy because they were used in small doses and when you have oh hell like, like voodoo and krakens and octopus men like running around it it just kind of numbs you a bit um well, the, yeah, and related to that, you know, this movie uh, they can do a bit. They can do more with the special effects in this movie. But I will say, Davy Jones as a special effect is a marvelously realized character. Uh, I I am in awe of what they did with that character in this film. Davy Jones' crew, on the other hand, yeah, um, it's there's there's it's just it's a bit too crazy. They often are way too well lit. Um, there are times when his monstrous crew were used comically in a way that I think undercover, un, under, not undercover, it's that um, sort of unravels the horror that they should represent. Yeah, and their their movements are a bit cartoony, but yeah, the the Davy Jones voiced by Bill Nye um, is really good character animation. I think if they were to do that character now, you'd probably have more uh, more texture on the tentacles, uh, probably a bit more like wetness and slickness and kind of ephemera. Uh, but Quite possibly, but but overall, I find that it holds up. I think it, partly it's, it's a very successful effect, partly because it is very characterful. Uh, sure. Um, so, I mean, let, let's talk about the, the show from the beginning. Uh, it, it starts out... Uh, kind of unexpectedly, things are things are dark, and we have uh, Elizabeth Swan is expected to be married to Will Turner, but he's not there. It's in the rain. You don't know what's happening, and um, then a new character comes out, and I think this character is the, the big problem with the movie, Lord Beckett. Because he looks and acts a lot like Norrington from the first film, and then later Norrington is a character. Yeah, he and he and he sort of fulfills the same the same role. Um, the one thing, the one thing that I do like though, uh, with uh, with with Beckett and, and Norrington. So um, Beckett does, you know, he he comes to arrest several characters for what they did in the first film. Yeah. Uh, Including Norrington, this is this is something I love. There's something I'm always a little bit annoyed in a movie whenever like the hero gives the villain a head start to escape. I'm always a little bit dissatisfied with that, and so I am so happy that because Norrington gave Jack a head start, he's arrested. <laughs> like I love that that choice has a consequence. That was great. Yeah, that's pretty smart and. I mean, at the intro, the the music is pretty somber, and it it it, it gets enough to an, uh, a good start because you're really shaking things up. The heroes are all in different places. People are getting arrested. You don't really know what the hell is uh, is going on. Um, and uh, you might recall in the original film, they make a big deal about Will Turner's father, Bootstrap Bill Turner, and. Uh, Jack is on the Black Pearl, he's wandering around, and he gets visited by Bootstrap Bill. Um, 
Who, which I, I do not like. The, he's played by Stellan Skarsgård, who viewers might recognize as the um, scientist character from the Thor movies. Oh, uh, yes. He, he, he's done a lot of um, Lars von Trier films. Uh, he, he's a good actor, but his makeup in this, I just think, looks cheap. I don't know what it is. He has kind of this barnacle thing on the side of his face, and uh, it just, just doesn't seem as fully realized. Well, I think that's just it. I mean, there is a some somewhat of a narrative justification for this, but I think they go so fantastical for Davy Jones and his crew that having mm-hmm. a member of the crew who looks eh, pretty much human with a barnacle is is something of a letdown. That said, it, it, it's a lot like the effect in the... Uh, did you see that Warcraft movie that came out a few years ago? No, no, I haven't seen it. Oh, um, I wish that had a sequel, because that's really something to talk about. <laughs> but, um, anyhow, it has... Uh, the orcs are all CG, except for one character that is half-orc, half-human, which is a person. And mm. it's really distracting. Interesting. You don't have a, you don't have a consistent... Um, you know, look or design philosophy going on with that. Yeah, but, thi- but this is when we get another one of the supernatural elements uh, introduced with uh, with Davy Jones and his his damned crew, uh, where it, tur- it turns out that a sailor in in dire straits can sell their soul to Davy Jones uh, for their for their heart's desire. Uh, but you end up becoming cursed and become part of his crew. And so we find out that Bootstrap Bill, and this is kind of a nice bit of character work, Bootstrap Bill was drowned, and as he was dying on the ocean floor, he reached out to Davy Jones and joined his crew and now regrets it. But I really do like him describing what it's like to drown and to see your death coming as as you're you're deep in the water. That's really, really horrific, and, and it's, it's that's very effective. But we find out that Jack Sparrow also cut a deal with Davy Jones to raise the Black Pearl from the sea, which I guess happened before the events of the first film. It's called retconning, yeah, yeah. Which is which is that? That's kind of like a bigger. I, I, so this is like so, so. Let's let's talk about structure. I think like the idea that Jack would sell his soul to Davy Jones and then would try to find a way to weasel out of it. That seems like something his character might do. Sure. But to have it to have it turn out that that happened way in the past um, is something of a something of a disappointment because it's like okay so you knew Davy Jones would come to collect and you've done nothing um, so I feel like what should happen in this film we should see that shouldn't have happened it's at the climax of the film we should see the Black Pearl get destroyed we we should see the ship that we care about completely wrecked and then we see. Jack Sparrow make the bargain with Davy Jones. Hmm. Like, that yeah, would be very right. narratively satisfying. Yeah, you could set that up uh, more elegantly than in a few lines of dialogue. Yeah, and, and, and it does, and it does really, because, like, Jack Sparrow, the first film, he is a, you know, he is a lovable rogue. Um, in, in this film, he's not a lovable rogue. He's he's a, he's an asshole. He might as well be a villain in his own right, because you know what what happens later when he confronts Davy Jones is that Davy Jones makes a deal with him. If you can get me a hundred souls, well then I won't take your then I won't take yours. And so, what does Jack Sparrow do from that point in? Try to trick a hundred sailors into serving with him and signing their souls over. Yeah, he's Shane High and a bunch of people. Really, yeah, it, it, it's despicable it's um 
I, I, I don't know, part of me wanted to say out of character, but then he's a pirate too. I mean, that's the thing. He's sort of a, not just a hero, but an anti-hero, but it's such a, it, that is quite a weird moment. But what I did like with this part in the beginning with Bootstrap Bill is uh, he does something to Jack Sparrow's hand where it's like black. Oh, the black spot, yeah. The black spot, which is something right out of Treasure Island. And um, I, I appreciate that. So, uh, you as you, all these plates are spinning with the plot, you have um, Will Turner works a deal with Lord Beckett where if he has to find a... Uh, a comp- he has to get Jack's compass, which can go wherever your heart desires. And if oh, he yeah, does yeah, that, the compass will always lead you uh, yeah. to what you want. Right. And so if, if Will steals Jack's compass and gives it to uh, the Beckett and the East India Trading Company, then um, Elizabeth will be freed from jail. And this is actually another thing I do like about, about Beckett. You know, so, you know, it's established this is a world where supernatural things can happen. I really do like the idea of the East India Company trying to weaponize the supernatural because that's what that's what comes out as we turn out that Davy Jones used to be a sailor and he had his heart broken and it hurt so much he did something that removed his heart but turned him into a monster but if you have his heart you can control him and that's what the East India Company does the East India Company wants the Beckett wants the heart so he can control Davy Jones and Davy Jones's pet sea monster and thereby expand the British Empire um, which is like that. That's a great idea. I wish the movie was a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, if it's about that, why do you have this like nonsense for nearly thirty minutes where <laughs> Will tracks down Jack to a, an island where he's ahead of all these cannibals? And uh, I mean, there, there's some fun bits there where like uh, Jack is being cooked on a fire. He gets away, and there's this ridiculous. Uh, it looks kind of like a pole vaulting, uh, big stick thing, spear on his back and a fruit like gets attached on either side and looks like a human shish kebab. Uh, well, but it goes on for way too long and it's in, pretty inconsequential really. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of like he's almost a Warner Brothers cartoon action like yeah, well, where he starts uh-huh. where he starts seasoning himself and like it's that's it's it's one of those and this this is actually so a lot of the stuff with the cannibals is kind of hard to get to cuz some of the movie's best comedy is in this scene. But on the other hand, there is it's it's kind of like it's it's old school it's old school movie racism uh, I guess for lack of a better term ah, ah, right. I mean the these are just like these are just like cannibal natives um nothing is done like nothing is done to ground this to ground this scene uh in in a way that makes this anything anything other than okay so in a movie where the East India Company the company that invented the administrative massacre is your villain. You're really, you're really hurting your premise when you immediately turn around and show native peoples as ungovernable cannibals. That's such a smart um, idea, you know, point. And also, they have a weird reference to the East India Company that's kind of dropping. You miss it where Jack is uh, trying to root around for a weapon or something, and he finds paprika. And it's in the chest that says East India Company. Yeah, well, the spice trade was a huge thing for the East India Company, so that's 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 good. That's like a good detail there. Um, oh, but so this whole cannibal thing. So 
so all of the uh, so all the pirates who have come to the island to find Jack, they are eventually captured by the cannibals and like hung over a ravine in these baskets. Oh uh, boy! Yeah, and it's it's. It's a scene, and so they they like they coordinate their movements to swing the baskets to the canyon's edge and do this neat kind of climb. Um, and it's a huge it's a huge action action set piece. It's a very I find fun action set piece. However, it's in the first third of the movie, and I find that no other action set piece lives up to this scene. I really, I don't know. I, I thought that scene seemed a bit fake. And what you look at the whole scheme of the movie. This stuff in the Cannibal Island feels more like the fun tone of the first film. And it doesn't match with the overly serious, kind of dark and rainy stuff we get for the rest of the picture. Well, you know what? Maybe maybe this scene should have been the opening, and then all the prelude yeah, yeah. to this scene could have just been spun off in quick dialogue. Right. This could have been like the James Bond kind of opening, where you do a little self-contained fun bit, and then, uh, and, and then get on with it. Um you, uh, there is, uh, I do like the imagery that was played heavily upon in the trailer for this film, where you had, uh, Jack Sparrow, uh, he's worshipped as a god by these cannibals, and he has three eyes painted on each side of his face, plus on an additional fourth eye on his eyelids. Oh, yeah! And I think that looked pretty cool, I mean, it was kind of sad they got rid of that, but... Well, well, you know, the other thing that, that did kind of bother me about this scene is, is, of course, and again, this kind of goes back into, like, racist undertones of the depiction of the natives, is that whenever Jack communicates with them, it's just nonsense words, but there's always some dirty word slipped in there. Like, the big phrase they keep hitting is ball licky licky. That is yeah. such a lame gag. Well, here, speaking of which, this reminds me of something I, I meant to mention last episode. So remember in the first Pirates film, uh, there's the big scene where uh, Jack and Elizabeth are stranded on the island and they drink a lot of rum. And Jack Sparrow, as he as he does, he just like mumbles stuff, just randomly. In the theatrical cut, and when it was only in theaters, one of the things he says is Dirty Sanchez. However, when it came on home video, they snipped that part out. Huh. I didn't catch that in the theater. Uh, I didn't either, and the only reason I know about that is I read a profile of Johnny Depp, uh, Rolling Stone did, that doesn't um, make Johnny Depp look very good at all, really. With the, He's had a lot of stuff going on with uh, 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 spousal abuse and, and, and all this nasty business in his personal oh. life. Yeah, per, per, personal life, he is by all accounts a scumbag, uh, and that is that yeah. is unfortunate because that can taint the experience of watching these movies. Yeah, um, but back to uh, you know we we mentioned uh, I think last week a little bit about there, there's the computer game Secret of Monkey Island, and the oh, sequence yeah. where Jack and company visit the voodoo priestess, I think is the most deliberate Monkey Island stuff in this film. It it could be. I mean, I don't know if it's an, an intentional reference, but it could be right. It's right out of the game. It's the exact type of thing you would do. Well, and even I think it's the uh, might be the second Monkey Island film where you you get on a boat and you go through and you go in this big kind of uh, creepy looking voodoo house and uh, it it. I mean the the de the designer of the first two Monkey Island games, Ron Gilbert, like got very upset that like this stuff was in the movie. And I think he was more upset by Disney's response in that nobody working on this has ever heard of Monkey Island. 
<laughs> I, I, like, I would challenge shit. that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, so you're you're talking about you know, this movie kind of uh, seemingly lifting things from other sources. Um, I am holding a book in my hands. Yeah. Uh, I am holding in my hands the 2003 edition of H.P. Lovecraft's Kingsport. It is a Call of Cthulhu role-playing game supplement published by Chaosium. Kingsport is a seaside town, and in this book, and keep in mind, this is the 2003 edition. Uh, this is an older, this book has been around for a while, I think since uh, the, the late 80s at least. Um, so in it, there is a scenario dead in the water, uh, which is a scenario that involves undead pirates. And the undead pirates in this scenario bear a shocking resemblance to Davy Jones' crew, and in fact, the boat bears a shocking resemblance to the Flying Dutchman. Uh, it is a boat composed of both living and dead material. Uh, all the pirates are also uh, also have like weird uh, have weird features. Uh, and the one that the one that jumps out uh, as more than just a coincidence. So if you'll notice, one of Davy Jones' crew members is this one pirate who has an exposed rib cage, and there's a fish flopping around uh, in his chest. Yep. That is straight up one of the pirates in this scenario. It is specifically mentioned in the description of the undead crew of the uh, of the Helene, which is the name of the the crew the, the boat in this scenario. Uh, is that he has a fish flopping around in his skeletal rib cage? Mm. Now, now, admittedly, that's not necessarily plagiarism. That could be a tribute. One of the people who designed David Jones' crew could be a fan of Call of Cthulhu. Uh, I've seen things like that happen in movies before, you know. So I don't, I don't want to claim plagiarism when a tribute was the intent. But that was something that really jumped out at me when I first saw when I first saw this movie because I had just read the Kingsport book at the time. How about that? Yeah, that's a pretty, uh, pretty good catch um so we have naomi harris as tia dalma the voodoo priestess and she um she's very good at this i wish there's wish uh, there was more of this character in this film like she's very very creepy and uh, it's a it's a memorable performance albeit brief so I love I love her accent. Uh, I mean, she really gives it her all. She she is hamming it up in a way that rivals Johnny Depp's own hamminess, and I think that's good. I I like that there's a woman in this film who can go who yeah. can go completely balls out with her with her character, um, and, I, and I really like that. That that being said, this is also when I started to like. I'm, I'm kind of tired of the bad pirate teeth. <laughs> ah, yeah, there's a lot of that in this. Because like on the on the one hand, it it does. It does kind of work. I mean, e- even like no no one in this era had good dental care. Uh, let's let's be, just be fair. But it's one of the it's one of those things. I guess you know teeth is are one of those things that I'm kind of sensitive about. Uh, at a certain point, the messed up pirate teeth reach critical mass, and it's right before she shows up. So I wish she had better teeth. Uh, it's surprising one of the sequels was not called Pirates of the Caribbean: Messed Up Pirate Teeth. The search for more teeth. Yeah. Um, it, well, and then historically, you look, and you're right, people didn't have great teeth and had, had to have dentures at much younger ages and so forth. But the people that had the worst teeth were not the um, the common man, but instead royalty who could afford sweets. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's an irony. Well, it, actually, that's actually funny is that uh, during, you know, in, in the... Uh, 
in the the Renaissance age of exploration, uh, age of empires type era, there were a lot of diseases that were sort of fashionable because only the wealthy could get them. Gout was a disease, like huh. gout, I believe, was known as like the king's disease because the highest levels of royalty who could afford the richest food and the most cured meats would tend to develop gout. That's I why did, you see. Yeah. That's why you see like a lot of pictures of governors and royalty with canes. The cane wasn't an affectation. Often it was to deal with their gout. Well, and it was also responsible for uh, at the time, at least in Europe or in parts of Europe, you had it was a a good thing for women to look um, Rubenesque was was the, the phrase because uh, after the paintings of the painter Ruben. Well, it's it's what today we would call thick with two C's. Uh, correct. Because it meant that, oh, you could afford a lot of food. You you were famine and drought resistant. <laughs> yes. And you didn't spend all day working in a, or toiling in a field. I say, It's really not work. You're not getting paid. You're toiling in a field. Mm-hmm. So... You're paid in the fact that your guy's brutal nights will protect you from the other guy's brutal nights. So there you go. Um... Fun, fun history facts at Superfest 2. And um, so as, as this plot of this movie lurches along, you, you have a, a scene that I don't think quite works where um, Dave, or where, uh, you know, you have some business where Will Turner meets his father and, and they talk and have sort of some an intense moment. And then he has to play, um, he plays a Will and his father and Davy Jones play a game of something called Liar's Dice, which I think is not explained very well. And yeah, I, I, well, and the scene well, doesn't work as well as say like the uh, the baccarat or the poker scenes in Casino Royale. Well, well I was about to say it, it's sort of this it's sort of the same problem that you get with like high stakes poker scenes in movies. Mm-hmm. It's not all that fun to watch people play a game that you're not also playing. Uh, so there's there's an extra hurdle that the director needs to cross so that you can kind of communicate the tension, and this this scene doesn't do it. Uh, you know, Liar's Dice. It's a it's a classic game. It's a game with a lot of history, but it's not necessarily one that everyone knows. I was introduced to the game because it uh, it is a mini game in Leisure Suit Larry Seven Love for Sale. So I really? I knew how Liar's Dice worked, but yeah, you're right. They don't do a good job of explaining how it works. And this also is kind of an other, another wrinkle. As you come to find out that apparently service aboard Davy Jones uh, or aboard the Flying Dutchman, it's not forever. When you strike a deal with Davy Jones, it's apparently for a set term. And so since the only thing they have is time, that's what they gamble with. Uh, they gamble with time from their uh, from the time that they have in service. Which does raise a question. So, if your time runs out, do you just become human and you're allowed to leave the ship, or do you die? I kind of that—that's a stake I would like to have explained mm. to me. Um, oh, and this is another thing. Do you remember those those liars dice sets that came out after this movie? Yeah, the merchandise. Yeah, I do. Yeah, they did. You know, they're they're pretty cool. So I see these in uh, in secondhand stores a lot, and I mm. always buy them up because uh, it it comes with these neat looking. Uh, barnacle-encrusted fake copper uh, cups, just like they use in the movie. But the dice are these awesome black dice that look all chipped and scuffed and have these awesome skull and crossbones images on uh, the one side, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, 
and they're gorgeous. And I pretty much buy them up just for those dice. I've got like three full sets of the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, uh, Liars dice. And I, when I run tabletop games, I bring them out at every opportunity. You ever use them in a LARP? Uh, actually, yes. We did yeah. a space. We did a space pirates LARP. And one of the things we did is we did set up tables so that the space pirates could gamble. And on one table, we had classic old school liars dice using these sets. And on the other table, we had Martian chess from Looney Labs games to give the gambling a futuristic air. So, it, yeah, I absolutely have. Oh, but you know the controversy behind the, uh, the licensed Pirates of the Caribbean liars dice sets? Uh, I don't, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. The, oh, you know it. Uh, the Disney, uh, so Disney attempted to copyright Liar's Dice. Uh, okay. They attempted to copyright slash patent uh, this game that's been around for hundreds of years. And uh, it did. It didn't take. Okay. It caused a lot of controversy, uh, and it and it didn't take. They were they were unsuccessful. Hmm. Which I, yeah. I think is, is is for is for is for the the good. I think it's preposterous that you should attempt that to to be able to copyright something that's 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 been around for a few hundred years. Right. Yeah. It's um, reminds me a little bit of the the lawsuit, and we're getting on a tangent. We'll get back to the show pretty quickly. Talking about Pirates of the Caribbean. Did Mitch Chess. Um, uh, there's the company, I, I, God, I forget the name, but they do the Candy Crush Saga games on the mobile phones. Oh, yeah, and, where they tried to, like, copyright Saga in the yes, context saga, of video which, game titles. It has been used in the title of so many games that it's like, really? Come on. Um, and I, I don't recall if that was thrown out or not. I assume it was, but... Uh, it, it, as I recall, it didn't get thrown out, but they withdrew it because it caused so much. It caused enough controversy that the that it started to threaten their brand. Yeah. Um, speaking of threatening the brand, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's <laughs> Chest. So you, uh, as the movie goes on, I mean, we, we talk about kind of these like dumb little set pieces, uh, but I do. Uh, but regarding the women characters, I do appreciate that they give. Kira Knightley as Elizabeth Swan, more to do in this show. Because what, what? she has a whole little subplot where she she escapes and makes herself look like a man and she's on board the ship. I wish they did more with that because like mm-hmm. the first, like she's immediately she's like Jack immediately discovers her identity. Yeah. Um, it, and it's kind of a funny exchange when he's like, Why are you all in my crew? He's like, I'm here to find the man I love. Well, I'm flattered, but my only true love is the sea. Which is a great little exchange. It, he's like, it, no, it is, and wheel- he does this funny little hand movement where he's like, toss her overboard or something. Like, it's... It, yeah, that's a nice... That's a joke more reminiscent of something from the first film. Yeah, I, I wish they had done more with that, though. Like, I would love to see... I, I would love to see her pretending to be a young man for longer. I mean, that's such a... That's just a classic thing in storytelling as a young woman pretending to be a young man to get somewhere or join the army or whatnot. I wish they could have made more of a meal out of that. Yeah, she doesn't really change her voice, does she? She doesn't go like, oh, hello, yes, Captain. Not, right? not particularly. No. But I like um, that she, uh, I like that, uh, but I like that, yeah, she has a more active hand in the story, and I think that's very, that's that's very good. It, it is it is much better than her, you like pain? Try wearing a corset from the first film, which is the, which I, the only thing in the first film I didn't like. Yeah, to quote one of the Disney cartoons, she is not a prize to be won, right? Yes. She has her own 
uh, bits and business to do, especially as this the story gets uh, towards the end. So Jack's Compass, uh, if, if I'm remembering correctly, although it's central to this plot, this was not a thing in the first film, right? Yeah, yeah, it was just a compass that he had. Uh, the idea that it was magic, uh, I don't believe, had ever been brought up until now. Yep, so they're trying to find Will Turner and uh, and all this stuff, and we, we have yet another extended sequence on uh, on an island on Isla Cruces where this ridiculous like three-way fight scene between Jack, Will, and... In Norrington, and when they're like on top of barrels, sword fighting, and it, it, this feels more Looney Tunes like the cannibal stuff in the beginning. And you just want the movie to get to the end, at the, or at least I did at this point. Like I, I just was getting bored, even though the, the the fight scene is fun and there's nothing really wrong with it. Well, it took it took too long coming. I think that's the the yeah. the fault of this scene. And and Norrington. He's on Tortuga, like, drunk with a beard and stuff. Like, that, that's sort of neat to see how he's fallen on hard times as he's tried to... <laughs> that's true. I like that. It, it is a nice contrast to his portrayal in the first film. Yeah, so... Um, like, he's had an actual arc, which I really like, even though we don't get to see much of it. Yeah. I mean, so what, what do you think about, like, the Kraken? That's, like, the big thing from this movie, right? Well, it's a neat, it's a neat threat, and like I like all the little details of how like they summon it with that weird like undersea drum, like that that kind of stuff is 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 pretty is pretty cool, and I like that we never quite get a good look at the kraken. Like most of it, whenever we see the kraken attack, yeah, it's almost completely sub submerged. We never see a pornographic shot of it leaping over a boat like Free Willy, uh, which I think <laughs> helps. Like. We're never sure how big it is. We're never sure how many tentacles it has. That mystery makes it a much more interesting monster than it might otherwise be. Yeah, and they, they set up pretty quickly that it's really powerful, um, which is, is good. And I like that the Kraken doesn't speak. It is a animal monster through and through. Quite, quite possibly only just barely controlled uh, by uh, Davy Jones. Sure. But uh, but in in the end, uh, Jack Sparrow and the Black Pearl get swallowed into a whirlpool, so he gets dragged to Davy Jones's locker. Um, the East India Company uh, gets uh, Davy Jones's heart, which is. Uh, which is a, a, a just a neat kind of it's it is CGI, but it's a neat kind of gloppy special effect when the heart is dumped yeah. out under the desk of the East India Company. Um, so you know that's that sets up more horrific things to happen in the sequel. But again, by the time by the time that happens, I'm very unsatisfied. Like I kind of I I don't want to wait for another movie to see what what devilry the uh, the East India Company is going to get up to with controlling the Kraken. Like, I want to see that now. I want to see that 30 minutes ago. Well, and then you have, a, kind of as a, as a teaser uh, for the next film as well, you, you have uh, the voodoo priestess is, is getting together a team to rescue Jack Sparrow, and they're going to be led by none other than Barbarossa, played by Jeffrey Rush. Yeah, because he said that, you know, Jack is in the land of the dead, and so the only way to get him out is somebody else who's gotten out of the land of the dead before and knows the way. And it's, Bar it's yeah, it's Barbosa, who who did die. He was shot to death in the previous film. And and that's another thing I didn't like, because it just it felt like one supernatural element too many. 
It did. On the other hand, even seeing Jeffrey Rush for a split second reminds me of how good he was in the first film, and that's something this one is lacking. Oh no, he's great. If you're gonna have if you're gonna have an old salt come back from the dead, it might as well be him. But but then it's all. But I guess you know actually what this is. It's a, it's another it's another thing uh, in uh, in fantasy storytelling. Once you've established that it's possible for someone to come back from the dead how much tension does a character dying have and why doesn't everybody mm-hmm. just come back from the dead? Now, admittedly, I don't know how he came back from the dead. I presume I'll find out when I watch the next movie. Um, and I hope and I hope it's worth it. Like, I hope it's appropriately risky. I hope it's difficult enough and anomalous enough that I don't wonder why everybody doesn't just come back from the dead. Right. It... It is, um, you know, they do set up stakes leading into the next movie at the end of this one, but it's not, you're right, it's not a satisfying ending. And I I feel so mixed about this film because I I really like some of the visuals, but ultimately the story doesn't really work. Well, when it came out, I gave it a sequel no, and I'm giving it a sequel no now. I'll have to give it a sequel no as well, because it, it had, I think you could cut at least 30 minutes out of this movie and have a much better picture. Yeah. The whole thing my... just feels too labored, too many characters, too much going on. Um, it's, the first movie was light and fun, this one was dark, simply because the second movie's in a trilogy, you're supposed to be dark, I don't know why, or they're trying to make it feel more Lords of the Rings- but it's not even dark. It's too. It's too fanciful to be dark. And Johnny Depp is but too so much, much of a other, goofball. I guess. But, but okay. So I don't mean necessarily. I mean you have characters being whipped and stuff. But so much of it is dark in the rain. And part of what I liked in the first one was a lot of it was out in the daytime. Hmm. Although that's probably not right. Come to think of it. Um, strike that. Reverse it. Anyway. Yeah. I will give this a sequel. No. As well. This is not a terrible movie. It's just, um, God, I don't know. Just it's, it. It didn't feel. It didn't feel worth it to me. I guess if I if I have yeah. to to condense it down, this this whole expedition just didn't feel worth it. To misquote *Lethal Weapon* two, the magic is not back. <laughs> now, if Joe Pesci had been a pirate, I can't do a Joe Pesci imitation. But, I um, shouldn't do a Joe Pesci imitation. Yeah, but what I uh, what I did find here, down with the papers, is a ancient cassette of uh, the BBC archives of the original sequel cast show. Oh, sequentially speaking. Sequentially speaking. So let's uh, let's take a listen to it. I'll put it uh, in the tape deck right here, and uh, and let's get rolling. Hello. And welcome to Sequentially Speaking. I'm Forter Smythe Wildersmythe, and with me as always is the Phantom. And tonight we are reviewing Pirates of the Caribbean 2, Dead Man's Chest. Yes, I'm a noted film critic for the uh, Tildesbury Observatory, and I have to tell you the Pirates of the Caribbean films are quite labored, but we're not talking about the films, we're talking about the Disney ride. I have to say, which feels like a film. I saw this, and it has pirates and all sorts of things. And not to mention old maids. 
Why would anyone want some? I'm sorry, what was that? Well, a lot of our more ignorant viewers, what they don't know, uh, is in fact that the Pirates of the Caribbean ride is in fact a prequel to the film series. Correct. In fact, many... uh... Oh, I'm terribly sorry. That, uh, that, That person just died of a stroke. Such a shame, but put yeah, he, him on the pile, I suppose. Yeah, he couldn't keep his accent straight. I'm, uh... I'm Willoughby Willis, and, uh, here to take his place. And the Pirates of the Caribbean ride is, uh, is really quite something. It's, uh... A lot of people saw this first film and were quite confused that the ride, uh... didn't feature into it that much. And some people were, didn't couldn't figure out the plot because they hadn't got on the ride. Imagine that, having a film where you couldn't understand it without going into a $200-person film park. Ludicrous. Well, perhaps the, the most fascinating aspect of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride uh, is the, the level of interactivity. Um, at one point, uh, one of the pirates, uh, who was wearing nothing so much as a flannel shirt and uh, khaki pants, uh, accosted me, leapt from uh, the set piece and accosted me in my little mobile cart and pressed an eight-track tape labelled From Shecky into my hand. And I'd like to play that tape for you now. Very good. So a tape from a pirate onto a radio show on the BBC. A pirate named Shecky, of all things. Uh, yeah. So I'll go ahead and uh, put the eight-track tape into the eight-track player, uh, and uh, I shall now thusly press play. How you doing? I'm uh, Shecky Spielboyd, and I, I know something about pirates. I, I got a ride... Uh, in my uncle's closet in the attic called uh, Pirate's Dead Man's Heft. So I, I throw you in a closet. I play pirate music really loud. I bonk you on the head with a bottle of rum. And then you come out and you swear you're seeing pirates. Quite fascinating. A- absolutely. And... Uh, Shortly after that, Shecky Spielboig was uh, arrested for um, kidnapping and misuse of rum. Quite an offence in the in the colonies, as I understand. And now, as we uh, wrap up the segment, we're going to enjoy uh, a meal using the finest paprika from the East India Trading Company. Mm, this uh, this kraken steak is quite delicious. Ah, yes, it makes me long for the days of empire. Hmm. I'm a Tory. Uh, I I like stories. They're quite good. Oh, no, you said you're a Tory. Well, well might I recommend uh, Shelley Duvall's Fairytale Theatre? Ah, Shelley Duvall, yes, she, uh... Wonderful set of Betamax tapes. Stanley Kubrick said on The Shining, I wanted a, an act, uh, a actress where... Someone could look on screen and thought, I hate that woman, just like Jack Nicholson did as the person that played her husband. And so... Holy oh, good. Was... Yes. He is a treat, isn't he? Oh, yes. Stanley Kubrick never treated his actors uh, in a negative fashion. None at all. Oh, that's quite a segment. So, yeah, we should uh, move on to um, what you're watching. Yeah, and if you have yeah. any uh, copies, because these, these are hard to find, because the uh, Sequentially Speaking was a victim of BBC tape wiping. If you have any tapes of Sequentially Speaking, please send them to us. Absolutely. So, we uh, had um, 
Yeah, so something I watched was a movie that happened to be ocean-themed. Aquaman. How is that? I did not like it very much. It has... <laughs> um, I groaned several times very loudly at the dialogue, and Avanna, my wife, leaned over to me and said, Matt, you can leave if you want. And so I, <laughs> I, I, I promptly shut up. But it... It's, um, I think it's so bad that it's funny, but it also doesn't need to be two and a half hours. Um, right. And although it's rated PG-13, it feels more like a PG. Uh, I do like that it's very colorful, uh, and I think the special effects are excellent. But the story is dumb, and it um, it makes the Aquaman scenes in Justice League make even less sense. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of I, I would I would love it if if at going forward DC just kind of was really slapdash with its own continuity. I think they've kind of been that way all along. I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. It's very uh, true, very interesting. But so far, I think worldwide, Aquaman has made almost eight hundred million dollars. Well, um, uh, according to I believe this was an article posted to the uh, the AV Club uh, a day or two ago, it has apparently made more worldwide than Justice League. Yeah, I did see that. And in, in China, it did very well, particularly. So uh, what about you? What's something, what's something you've been watching? Uh, well, so as long as we're on the superhero uh, subject, uh, I finally saw Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, uh, I, I've heard that's pretty good. Did you like it? It was It was really good. Uh, it is... It is... Uh, having having uh, thought it over, as much as I liked Homecoming and as much as I liked uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, overall, I think this may very well be the best adaptation of Spider-Man to the screen. Um, I love the way it wholly embraces its source material. It embraces all the weirdest aspects of Spider-Man lore from the comics. Um, and as an old-school Spider-Ham fan, I am delighted that Spider-Ham is in a big-budget movie. Um and it also, there's all these little elements uh, in this movie that are sort of lifted from comic book storytelling. I mean, it, it is the it is the only movie that has a like it's the I think it's the only movie since Ang Lee's Hulk that has attempted to duplicate some of the framing and pacing of a comic book mm. on the big screen, but it is more successful in doing that than Ang Lee's Hulk, which it uh, which is a movie that I still to this day really like. Yeah, I think that it's uh, really um, something with uh, just seeing pictures that they even reference the spy the uh, Marvel mag uh, mangaverse mangaverse, which is something most people don't realize even happened. Yeah, <laughs> I sometimes I think Marvel doesn't even realize that happened. It was it was a weird time. Um, well, clear, yeah. at the time, clearly they thought it was going to be the next big thing. It was not. Right, because it took Tokyo Pop and the, the manga uh, sold, you know, extraordinarily well, well, and then they're trying to ride that bandwagon. That's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> so, very good. we got to wrap things up here, I believe. So, um, let's do the sequel scene. Alrighty. So, yes, we have, uh, we have uh, pulled in a sequel scene. Uh, this is this is Will Turner and Jack Sparrow uh, sort of trying to make a plan with one another. Can I be Jack Sparrow this time? Oh yes, please. I was about to suggest uh, exactly that. Okay. Um, all right. So so let's go. You want me to find this? No, you want to find this. 
because the finding of this finds you incapacitatorily finding and or locating in your discovering the detecting of a way to save your dolly below what's a safe. Savvy? This is going to save Elizabeth. How much do you know about Davy Jones? Not much. Yeah, it's going to save Elizabeth. Yeah, that, that's that's a running gag in this movie, is Jack Sparrow giving a long speech with some mangled English, uh, and then someone undercutting it and him just kind of jumping to a... Uh, immediately cutting to a, a self... Uh, what for them will be a self-serving conclusion. Uh, as far as running gags go, I don't mind that one. I think it's it's cute. Um... It's not bad. It's in character. Very cool. Uh, Alright, so next week we're going to talk about Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. This will be the first time I've seen it. Uh, I I am hoping it makes the journey worth it. I guess we'll, I guess we'll see. Um, yes. Well, no, I'm not saying yes to your question. I was just thinking, I believe... Um, Xiaoyan Fat is in that movie, which is something oh. I enjoyed. Oh, that's cool. But don't quote me on that. It's been a while since... I, yeah, I'm correct. It is Xiaoyan Fat. So, yeah, it's... Um, and as we see in the poster for the third one, Jack Sparrow is front and center. So, who the hell knows? All right. <laughs> um... So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Internet Mayor. Also, check out Mark with the C from MarkWithTheC.com. He wrote and performed our theme song. And um, if you like the show, please go to our Apple podcast page and, uh, and leave a review. Anytime anyone does that, it always helps with the downloads. And uh, we need all the downloads we can get. We greatly appreciate uh, you listening to the show and so forth, and uh, it, this is the last episode recorded in in 2018. It's been, um, I think, a heck of a year. Um, oh yeah. And 2019 will be even more uh, a heck of a year. I think I'm going to start the process of making all the past sequel cast episodes available. So um, we'll have quite the more stable archive of shows online. Uh, we'll have a lot of good stuff to share with you. A lot of good stuff. Not always the best audio quality, but yes, a lot of good a lot of good content. Uh, including the infamous Lethal Weapon 4 episode um, in which audio glitches make two-thirds <laughs> of the episodes unlistenable due to Skype demons. Oh, yeah. Those were the days. Oh, the salad days where people tossed tennis balls into my eye sockets. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, for sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. You're a liar and a cheat, Jack Spiddock.